We started this journey a few weeks ago, kind of restarted the journey. It was a journey we started last year before the pandemic hit, and now we said it's time to, to restart and walk through this great letter the, that I'm calling the greatest letter of good news. It is good news. It's great news. Matter of fact, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, some people from church history that you've probably heard of, maybe you've studied a little bit about, some of these people I've shared a little bit about their testimony, their story, their lives were changed by the good news of the gospel and specifically studying the letter of Romans and understanding the gospel message. Frederick Godet, Samuel Coleridge, Dr. John McAce, a few others that we've talked about, have seen the gospel change lives when they proclaim it, profoundly changing lives, looking at it through this letter of Romans. And so we're diving deep into it. We're studying it here on Sunday mornings. All of our growth groups are studying it. Our men's groups, women's groups, they're reading around the book of Romans. They're looking at the Romans. Uh, there's a whole web page on our website. If you write that down, mycpoint.com forward slash Romans. You'll go there and there's a whole list of tools and resources that you can dive in deeper. Encouraging us as a church this year to walk in this letter and try to understand the gospel as the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Rome. Paul wrote these words in, Rome, in, in chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We've been diving in the idea. It's for everyone. This gospel we're talking about is for everyone. No matter what your age is, no matter what country you live in, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what language you speak, Paul says this gospel, when people believe it, it's salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is really, that's the sum of the entire letter of Romans. If you get that down, you go, I know what Romans is about. Now, the rest of the book of Romans is unpacking this. Paul says, now let me show you how we live this out. Let me help you to understand it. And so that's what we're doing. We're walking through saying, let's try to understand this. Paul, the author of Romans, remember his name was Saul? Remember he persecuted Christians. He was, he was known as, as part of the ones who were trying to stop the way. And he, if he could, he'd, he'd have them stoned to death or, or put to death. He was doing everything he could. His life was changed by this gospel message he's writing about. When he come to understand who Jesus was, who God is, what Jesus' death on the cross meant, when he grasped that, his life was changed. He turns his life around, and he goes out, and he starts preaching and teaching. He becomes a missionary, and he three distinct missionary journeys where he establishes the church. He's written over half the New Testament. And so this guy who once was trying to stop the move of Christianity is now spreading Christianity and spreading the gospel message He's the author of this great letter we have before us called Romans. See, today we're going to talk about some bad news. But in order for us to talk about bad news, in order for us to understand good news, I mean, in order for us to understand good news, we must understand the bad news. And we don't like to talk about bad news. But today, in the next few weeks, we're going to dive into some bad news. And I think we've got to understand it so we can understand the good news of this letter. Today we begin diving into the topic of the wrath of God. Now, I, I'm waiting for some of you all to say, Amen, let's do it, brother, let's preach it. All right, you're with me. First service was sleeping. I hope you all are more awake, okay? A lot of times you talk about the wrath of God, and you have some people who are like, Come on, preacher, let's go. 
I'm ready. Give us some hellfire and brimstone. I'm ready for that. But then some others are like, man, I really want to hear about the wrath of God, Brian. I wanted to come hear some good news. I just want to be encouraged today and walk out of here and be like walking on cloud nine. Some people believe the church should center their message around the wrath of God. Some say the church doesn't preach enough about it. Either way you think about it, it's something that some churches will talk a lot about and some churches will talk hardly ever, ever about. And I think there's a balance in there. I, I think when we start thinking about it, we don't want to be the church that says we're going to condemn everybody and tell everybody they're all going to hell. But we don't want to be the church that gives everyone a cheap grace and says, oh, just, just, just here it is, it's real simple, and not talk about the hard side. But many times we, we don't want to talk about the hard stuff. See, most of us would rather hear about love and grace, right? Tell me about the love of Jesus. Tell me about the grace of Jesus. I, let me be honest with you. I'd rather preach about that. I'd rather not be talking about the wrath of God today or the next few weeks. I, I'd rather speak to you about how God loves us. But after all, speaking of the wrath of God, many times in this culture especially, makes us narrow-minded, makes us judgmental, makes us fundamentalist, makes us unloving, as our culture would say. It makes you honest. I like that, Nick. Here's the truth. is For us to understand the love of God, we must understand the wrath of God. We must. See, on another level, the wrath of God is difficult to comprehend. In some ways, this doctrine is easy to overlook. It's easy to skip over. The thought that nice people we know, the thought that you mean my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister or my son or my daughter or my friend who I work with, the thought that these people that are nice, these people that I have fellowship with, these people that I, I eat with, these people that I maybe go golfing with, these people that I, I go to a restaurant with, these people I sit down and have a cup of coffee with, you mean the thought of people like that could eternally go to hell? It's so overwhelming. The thought that people that I know and I care about, it's disheartening to think that people could possibly spend eternity away from God. And so many times we don't talk about hell, we just think about heaven. I, I got to tell you, I've never been to a funeral where someone says, man, that poor sucker didn't know Jesus, he's in hell. It doesn't happen. Everybody, when they're laying in a casket, they go, man, they're in a better place now. It's not always true. And I never have done it, but inside of me, someone want to say, wait a minute, do you know this person? They stood against God. See, before we dive in deep, let me just say to us, church, there is no need for us to apologize to talk about the wrath of God. We don't have to apologize for it. Now, you say, well, I don't do that. Well, let me just let me get you to think on this a little bit with me. I think many Christians feel like that, that we need to apologize. Like, if, if the preacher talked about hell today, uh, and then you walk out of here, i, I, I got to apologize about that. See, some think that it's not even part of God's character. Some would say, wait a minute, God loves everybody, everybody's going to heaven. No, that's not biblical. They, they may think that God's wrath is inconsistent with his love. If God loves everybody, how could he possibly allow anybody to go to hell? You, re you realize what I just said? Allow anybody. See, God doesn't send people to hell. He allows you to go if you make that choice. In fact, you can test yourself on this one. If you were here today and you brought a friend or you thought about bringing a friend and you thought he's preaching on hell and you feel like, I need to apologize, you walk out. Yeah, I'm sorry. He normally doesn't preach on that topic. He normally is much more nicer and deals with God's love and God's grace. I'm sorry, come back next week. Then you're living in that apologetic mindset. 
See, or if you're sitting here today and you look around and you see a few new faces, you think, oh man, I hope they come back next week. I hope they come back too next week. If you're new today and this is your first time, I hope you come back and you say, hey, there's a preacher who's actually preaching the truth. And we need the truth. See, there's no need to apologize for God's word as long as it's presented in a way that one doesn't elevate the speaker and the people listening it don't take joy in the outcome of his wrath. Well, how do you do that? Oh, give it to them, preacher. They need to hear it. That's taking joy. That, that's like, okay, you go after them, you go get them. No, that's not, that's, that's not the mindset. The mindset should be a broken, contrite heart. Like, Lord, I want more people to come to Jesus. I don't want them to experience God's wrath. So I've always found it interesting that people who want the fire and brimstone preaching often don't believe they're anywhere close to Sodom and Gomorrah when it falls. Who don't want to look at our own sin? Kind of like the man who was an elder and ran the church and sat in the same spot every single Sunday, right in the front row, and the preacher would get up and preach. And before he preached, the elder would, would say to him, and he'd instruct him, he said, now you make sure you give him a lot of hell today. The old country elder had his own little spit tune, and he was sitting in the very front row with his little cup that he spit in her spit tune. And the preacher started preaching and said, those who aren't part of the church are hell bound. And he would spit in a spit tune and say, Amen. Those who are greedy, they're hell-bound, spit in a spittoon, amen. Those who are drunkard are hell-bound, amen, or spit. Those who aren't controlled by the Holy Spirit, but rather controlled by substances like tobacco, are hell-bound. You're fired, as he made another spit. Because we don't want to hear about our own sin and what happens to us because of our sin. See, God's wrath sounds great unless you really understand how devastating it truly is and how I should respect it, but never desire it. We don't understand it because two facts stare us in the face. One is the Bible says more about the wrath of God than it does about the love of God. That's an interesting thought. And Jesus more, spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Well, why is that? Because he didn't want anybody to go there. He wants us to understand it. So we say, I want to choose the love of God. See, the Bible's filled with warnings about God's wrath and about eternal, eternal judgment. Let me just give you a working definition. We've got to begin with a definition of wrath. When you say wrath, all kinds of ideas come to your mind. It's important to have a proper definition since we're going to have to deal with this topic for the next few weeks. Many times we think of wrath, what comes to mind? Uncontrolled anger. Someone who's just that person who's wrathful and they, they explode in anger. Many times it's the abusive spouse, the person who's, who's being abusive to their husband or their wife. Sometimes it's the abuse of parent, the child who thinks, yeah, I understand wrath. My dad or mom, they beat the snot out of me. Sometimes it's the out-of-control boss. Yeah, I understand wrath. Is he going to do one thing wrong? My boss loses his head or loses her head. See, these may be a great examples of human wrath, but they're far from the truth of God's wrath. So here's a working definition as we work through this. God's wrath is his settled hostility towards sin. His settled hostility towards towards sin. That's God's wrath. To say it is settled hostility means that God's holiness cannot and will not exist or coexist with sin in any form whatsoever. Whatsoever. God's wrath is a holy hatred of all that is unholy because God and sin cannot live in the same area. They won't interact together. God's wrath, it's not uncontrolled rage. Oh, I can't believe he did that. I'm coming after him. It's not vindictive bitterness. Oh, I can't believe she did that. I'll get her back. It's not God losing his temper. Like sometimes I've done as a parent to my children because they messed up and I blew my stack. That's not God's wrath. In fact, the Bible says 
in more than one place that God is slow, slow to anger, slow to anger, not wanting anyone to perish. So God never loses his temper the way we do. God doesn't just blow it up. I'm guilty. I've lost my temper more than once in my life. Ask my wife, ask my kids, they could tell you the truth. and say, the preacher sometimes loses it at home. That's not God, though. It's not God. He, he cannot overlook it, though. His wrath, God's wrath is God's natural way to respond to sin in the universe. He doesn't close his eyes. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't pretend like, oh, it's really not happening like we do. Well, they're doing that. No big deal. He can't do that. That's not his character. So the wrath is, wrath is what happens when holiness meets sin. That's what happens. Wrath is what happens when perfect good meets pure evil. So as long as God is God, he cannot and he will not overlook sin. Here's an illustration from the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, that's not Ohio because God is not an Ohio fan, but Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord the songs and the lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put it out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. Why would Uzzah die? Exodus 37, Bezel made rings at the four corners to slide poles through. You've probably seen pictures of it where the ark is, is a rectangular shape, and they had these rings where the poles could go through so they could pick it up and carry it and not actually touch the ark, kind of like a casket, getting a picture of a casket, how these little um, poles come out on the side so people can pick it up and carry it. Well, they had that. In Numbers 4.15, they're instructed to not touch the holy things of God. So what did they do? Before Uzzah ever touched it, God was merciful. He provided a way to not touch the holy ark of God. But once the line was crossed, God had to act. You say, wait a minute. He, they said, don't touch it. It was an accident you touched it. Well, let's just think about this for a moment. If God says, if you touch that ark, you're going to die, and he backs up on it and says, well, they touched it. It was an accident. I'm sorry. I'm going to back up on that. What would that mean for God's word? We would be like, does he really mean what he says? Matter of fact, think about this with your kids. When my children were growing and they were little, there were times that mom and dad had to say, hey, Lily Grace, don't touch that. Hey, Luke, don't touch that. Hey, Caleb, you don't touch that. Now listen, if you touch that, you're going to get your hands spanked. And inevitably, what do they do? They go to touch it, or they would touch it, and then the test is there. Am I a man of my word or not? And if he touches that or she touches that, just a little tap on the hand would be a wake-up call and go, oh, I'm not supposed to touch that. If they touched it and I went, oh, I'm sorry, I love you too much, I'm not going to let you do, just don't touch it again. I, I won't spank your hand, really. Poor parenting, okay? Y'all are parents. Do what you say you're going to do. So when you tell your child, don't touch that, they touch it, you spank their hand. So they start to learn mom and dad's words mean what they say. God's words mean what he says. He says, you don't touch the ark. They touch the ark. Sorry. I, I, yeah, the, the, the ox stumbled, but the, 
the, the thing was, don't touch it. You lost your life. Here's another example. In Achan, in Joshua 7, God said, don't take anything for yourself, gold or silver. So whenever there was like a battle or a war, they would go into an area, and then they would kind of clean up the plunder and clean up what's left. He says, don't take anything for yourself. Joshua made a covenant with God to surrender all those items, and Israel knew it. Look what happens in Joshua 7. Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord of God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them. In other words, man, they look really good. I want them. And I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So he's told, don't go in. When we go in, don't take stuff. And he says, no, I'm, I, I, that stuff looks good. I want it. So he takes it, and he takes it to his tent. So Joshua sends a messenger, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and all his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all of Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with the fire, and stoned them with the stones. Wow! And you may think, that seems so brutal. And so unnecessary. Couldn't he said, now listen, you touch this stuff, you're going to be put in jail for 30 days or 60 days, and then everything will be okay. No, God's word had to be kept. It was unnecessary. But Achan could have obeyed. He could have said, God is God, and I'm going to follow the rules. God's holiness demands wrath. He cannot coexist with sin, and therefore there must be a payment. Because sin and God cannot be one. They're like oil and water. They don't mix. Now, those are Old Testament examples. We could go through many more. They, th these are needed so that we understand the writings of Paul. Some of you are like, I thought we were in the book of Romans. Yes, we are. We're getting there. But we need to have that little bit of the background so that we can understand that God and sin cannot coexist. So now, over the next two weeks as we go through this, or two chapters as we go through it, we need to remember this as we walk through this, that God and sin cannot coexist. They don't go together. And then Paul writes this in verse 18. Here's Romans for you today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all. Not some unrighteousness, not a little bit of unrighteousness, against all unrighteousness. The things that we go, well, that's just a little tiny thing, or the things that we go, well, that's just a really big thing, or the things that we go, well, that's somewhere in the middle. His, his wrath is, is unleashed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. I want us to spend just a few minutes around this verse today. This is what we want to dive into. In your growth guide, in your growth group, and in the guide that's on your, on your device that you open up this morning or on our website there, you can dive in deeper. See, all who were wicked will face God's judgment. It comes as a response to man's rejection. Look, look how it progresses. 
men and women would rather be godless. They would rather run their own lives. I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do. So they suppress the truth that there is a God that is over them. Well, there's a God, but he's not really in charge of my life. Maybe, maybe there is no God. And we start to suppress the truth. That ungodliness then leads us to wickedness. I can do life the way I want to. The wick, that wickedness leads us to every kind of violence. Notice how it happens. First, we, men and women, reject the truth about God. They turn away from God, and they run to immorality. Why do we run to immorality? Because we want to do what feels good. And the shocking truth is that that is what goes on all the time. Left to our own devices, we'll always run towards wickedness. Left to our own devices, we're always going to run to what makes me feel good. We're always going to run to what makes me happy. We're always going to run to what do I think is right. That's why we suppress it in the present tense. It's not that we are sinful by nature. It's that we literally cannot please God because we cannot know all that pleases God. It's not that we can't, can't do pleasing things. It's that if we do one displeasing thing, then we are subject to incur the wrath of God. Have you done one displeasing thing to God? Most of us understand we have. Some are still trying to figure that out. Truth is, all of us have displeased God at some time. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In other words, we can't possibly completely understand the mind of God. But we must surrender to Him. But if we don't surrender Him and receive His Holy Spirit, then we're unable to fully please God. How do we please God? We surrender to Him. We surrender to Him and His ways. This is true in every generation and every culture. All of us suppress the truth about God at some point. All of us, when left to our own selves, will turn to wickedness. We'll turn to things that make me happy. We'll take care of me, myself, and I. And as, Paul, as hard as that may be for you to accept, is exactly what Paul is teaching. And the more I please me, the more I suppress God, the more I run towards things that do not please God, and that's when I move towards wickedness and evil and things that deserve God's wrath. And he writes, it's being revealed. How's it being revealed? Well, remember the flood? Part of revealing. God revealing to us that God and sin cannot coexist. He did this by destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. God and sin cannot exist. He destroyed nations that went against Israel. He destroyed Israel when they weren't faithful. He defines justice that puts away murderers and thieves. His wrath is being revealed. Why our culture today is showing us more and more and more what sin looks like. Murder. Wars, rumors of wars, living together before marriage, sex outside of marriage, same-sex marriage, um, same-sex um, relationships, um, gender challenges we're seeing before our society now. Are you a boy? Are you a girl? Or can you choose what you want to be? All this is, is God allowing our nation to go down the road of sin, and he's revealing more and more that we need him. See, his wrath is being revealed just by the laws of his nature. Just by laws of nature, if I took a ladder out and went outside this building and climbed up on the roof, which I have no plans of doing because I don't like heights, if I did that and I stood on the top and I looked down and said, you know, I think I can jump off of this and I'll be okay, what would happen? I would jump and I'd splat pretty fast. 250 pounds dropping about 25 foot. It don't take about two seconds, if that. And it's not going to feel good. Even if I think, you know what, I can float like a butterfly. 
I'm going to do it. It's not going to happen because here, here's the truth. His laws of nature are going to happen. God is revealing himself. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure that your sin will find you out. In other words, you're going to pay for your sin. You may think, I'm going to hide from God. Well, you can hide for a little while maybe, and you think you're being hidden, but God knows what's going on. You say to yourself, but wait a minute. There are people who live in this world, Brian, who are ruthless and who are sin-filled, and it looks like they're being blessed a lot. There are some wicked people who seem to do so well. I mean, why does God let, let them live such sinful lives and they still have all this blessing when I'm living my life trying to honor God and I feel like I'm struggling all the time and I can't get ahead? Well, Psalm 9.16 says, The Lord is known by His justice. It will come in His time, not my time. Judgment will come. There's a story that goes on about a farmer who in the Western community, were, the farmer community, they were greatly shocked by this one farmer who wanted to ignore the plans and the, and the directions and the will of God, and he wanted to do his farming on Sunday. He owned a whole bunch of acreage around this one church out in the country, and he purposely would farm all his other land, and then when, when it comes Sunday, he would be farming right up next to the church, and so all the equipment and all the noise in the church, people would hear that, and they were deeply concerned. They're concerned, like, why would he not do this part of the land on a different day, and especially not on Sunday? And he had great crops. Great things were happening. He wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper and pointed out all this work he had done on Sunday and how all his crops were so great, and he had the highest yield per acre in a farm in the, in the county. And he asked the editor how the Christians could explain this. Because, you know, according to them, I'm ignoring God's direction and plans of not working on a Sunday. He didn't feel God was involved at all. The editor, with great common sense, printed the letter and followed it with a simple statement. God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. See, we tend to think about here and now. Like, why, why didn't God ruin his crops? I mean, couldn't God just spray dust that with a bunch of Roundup? He could have. He could have. But that's how we think. We think the here and now. See, there's another way this wrath is being revealed. Ephesians 2 says, All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. We have all have a nature that have, we have corrupted by being disobedient to God. Think back to Uzzah and Achan. God doesn't let people slide into heaven that do not surrender. So everyone, in the here and now, if you're not a Christian, or once you before you became a Christian, we are what? Objects of wrath because of our sin. Why? Because God and sin cannot coexist, so something has to happen with our sin. What does that mean? We, we might be thankful that if we are Christians that we don't pay. We don't pay. But God's wrath needed a payment. God's not going to let us into heaven being people who are filled with sin. Because when you get to heaven, there is no sin in heaven because God and sin cannot what? Cannot coexist. So something has to happen with our sin. Therefore, God's wrath is revealed every time we recognize that Jesus died on the cross. Here in a moment, we're going to partake in communion. When you partake in communion, you're being reminded that God's wrath has been revealed. But Jesus took it on for us. Jesus took the pain. Jesus took the payment. Jesus paid the price. Dr. Donald Barnhouse had a great illustration. He said, the wrath of God is like a great water impounded behind a dam. 
He said, I can remember the first time I ever saw Hoover Dam, one of the greatest of all dams on earth. It has been thrown across the waters of the Colorado River, and these waters have backed up for miles and penetrated into every little cove and valley. And thus, it has been with the wrath of God. The first time there was ever a sin committed, the wrath of God was stored up against that sin. And as men lived upon the earth, and as their hearts grew more wicked at the outbreak of their sin, more violent, the store of wrath grew greater and greater, held back by the patience of God, which lies across the valley of His judgment like a great dam across the river. And His eternal foreknowledge, God the Father foresaw, foresaw all the sin that would ever be committed after a time of Christ, your sin and my sin, and He stored His wrath against it behind the dam of His patience. Are you thankful for the Lord's patience? He went on and wrote and said, In the wrath of God against sin that even today has not yet been, com been committed is also stored up waiting for the day when his patience shall burst into its holy end. For thousands of years that dam has held, and God has held back his wrath. Occasionally throughout human history he stooped to dip his hand into the pent-up flood and pour a few drops of wrath on some, especially vicious outbreaks of rebellion. But for the most part, God seemed to overlook the sins of man in the centuries before the cross. It looked maybe as if sin was tolerated, but it's just piling up. The dam broke one day at Calvary. It broke, and Christ drowned in the, in the sin, in, in his blood, that you and I put on his shoulders. It's going to break again. It's going to break again, and, and will drown all those men and women who are not in Christ. Christ took the judgment for those who believe. For those who do not believe, for those who do not believe, they will take on their own judgment. Stop and think about that for a moment. Christ took the judgment for those who believe. He said, you believe, I'll take the pain, I'll take the judgment, I'll take the penalty. For those who don't believe, while alive on this earth, they will take on that own judgment. They will take on that own penalty. They'll take on that pain, on that pain because the wrath of God awaits them. Because they hold the truth, no matter what they claim, but they hold it and they suppress it because of their sin. Well, I don't really have to follow Jesus. God's wrath is absolutely. It's going to come sooner or later on those who do not live according to His will. So church, we've got to answer the question. Am I ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Let me ask you, who have you told lately? Who have you opened your mouth to lately and said, hey, do you understand the wrath of God is coming? Maybe you don't use that word, but do you understand you need Jesus? Do you need to be saved? You need, you need to believe in Jesus? Have you had those conversations? As we go through the letter of Romans, we're going to be called week in and week out to think, am I sharing the message of Jesus? Because if we believe in the wrath of God, and if we believe in heaven and hell, then we should be motivated to say, I'm going to live like Paul. I'm not going to be ashamed. I don't want anybody to go to hell. All these people I care about, they're my friends, they're my family, I think they're nice people. I need them to understand you must believe in Jesus and not be ashamed of the gospel. Father God.